It doesn't take uh, much cultural observation to uh, find any range of things that are said um, from any viewpoint. And, and so uh, it, it deserves a conversation. This past week, my 12-year-old, I have a 12-year-old, an adolescent, uh, getting ready to go, you know, he's in middle school doing that whole thing, and uh, this past week he was sick. And so um, when my kids are sick, often uh, I try and get some work done. I'll bring them here to the building. I'll put them in our student ministry area, have them hang out down there. And so uh, my son, Everett, uh, he, we were driving in together. I was bringing him in here. And uh, he's, he's, he's pretty curious, and he asked me, so what are you, what are you doing? What are you, what are you working on today? I said, well, I'm, I'm, I have a message this week, and so I'm going to be writing a message. He goes, well, what's it about? I said, sex. You know, sexual expression, sexuality. <laughs> and he goes, you're just going to say it like that? <laughs> and I said, son, when you speak about sex, you, you got to own it. <laughs> you got to step into the moment, and you just have to say it, and you just have to own it. And you really have to make sure that the people listening are as uncomfortable listening as you are talking about it. And so, I'm going to ask you a question that you maybe have never thought of before, but I want you to ponder, and hopefully it'll make you as uncomfortable as I am up here right now. Did Jesus have a sex drive? Have you ever thought about that? Did Jesus have a sex drive? I think it's an important question because we imagine Jesus is kind of like a Ken doll down there. No working parts, just gender neutral. He's all spiritual, but not fleshly. But that would be really discouraging because you and I, we wear full flesh, don't we? We have all flesh, we have all the working parts, we have a sex drive, we have sexual impulses. And so what good is a you know, what the Bible claims, what good is a savior, a fully God, fully human savior, if that savior isn't really fully human and doesn't really have to deal with the full humanity that I have to go through or doesn't have to deal with the full uh, expression of humanity that you have to go through. We need a Savior, we need a God who understands every waking moment of what it's like to be fully human and knows what it's like to live through any kind of experience that you or I might have to live through. And so what the Bible claims, what Jesus himself claimed, is that he was fully God, this full expression of God, but in the flesh. John 1.14 says uh, that Jesus put on flesh and moved into the neighborhood, came to earth so that he could dwell amongst humans. Now, this is ultimately a really, really good thing for us, okay? Because most of us have gaps in the way we were brought up to understand sexual values, sexual education, our families and our communities, it's really hard and can get really awkward to talk about sex, right? As I'm finding out talking to my middle schooler. We tend, I think, to fall short in a couple ways when it comes to talking about sex. One, I think, is, is, is we, tend to, um, we tend to shun the topic. We neglect the topic. We don't give the topic the, the conversational space it needs. I don't know if you're like me, I grew up, and uh, this would be probably the category I fell into, where you just don't talk about it, except for one very awkward talk, 
with a parent. And then uh, normally some kind of sex education class. Here was my sex education class. You know what I remember my sex education classes? We had a room, and it was like supposed to be fathers and sons. It was in like the biology room, of course, right, at school. And they made us put together a puzzle of the male reproductive system <laughs> to understand the working parts. I can't unsee that. That's with me. <laughs> And that was it. Like, that's it. Here you go. Here's the working parts. Here's the physiology of it. Here's a puzzle. <laughs> Figure it out on your own. We neglect the topic. We shun the topic. It's just too hard and it's too weird. So we don't really talk about it. Another uh, uh, trap, I think, that our communities and our families fall into when talking about sex is uh, not just shunning, but shaming a lot of us experienced shame heaped on us around this topic, especially perhaps if you were raised in a religious home or a religious family, a very church-going family. Church-going families talk about sex the least. It's like a proven fact that the more religious you are, the less you're going to talk about uh, sex, sexual value, sexuality. Because there's a heaping of shame put on it, and, and families, again, especially from religious backgrounds... They tend to overemphasize the badness of sex to keep kids from doing stupid things, <laughs> to control. It's all about behavior control, and we don't really get to the heart of, of what sex is created for, why God would give us sex, what sex is all about. And so what do we do? If we grow up and the topic is shunned, or if we grow up and, and we are shamed, we turn to celebrity culture. And that's where we learn about sex. I've had to tell my son, if you have a question about sex, please ask me and don't go to the internet. The internet has horrible advice. <laughs> but that's where people go. That's become the culture. There's a vacuum, right? We don't have healthy conversations about sex. Why there is even this thing called sex in this world, the why behind it all, we don't talk about that. And we create this vacuum and this gap, and our adolescents are, are, are left to just kind of raise themselves. And we were kind of raised, and it's not just about them, it's about us too, right? We were left to raise ourselves for the most part and just figure things out on our own or from a magazine that one of our friends had. Like, it's, it's, it's not good. And it leaves me in a place where, where I just want to shout, because I think about our kids, and I think about how they are always just, how, I mean, how thick is a, is a screen on a phone? If you had to guess, like 0.05 millimeters. <laughs> My kids are like half a millimeter away from sexual exploitation at any given point. Because <laughs> they're always within arm's reach of a screen. That's why I really like um, Ellen DeGeneres' quote. Can we put that back up there real quick? Ellen DeGeneres had that quote. Um, it was one of the last quotes that we had up there on the sides that we showed up. And she says, I just feel like every kid is growing up too fast and they're seeing too much. Everything is about sex and that's fine for me. I'm not saying I don't like it, but I don't think it should be everywhere where kids are exposed to everything sexual because they have to have some innocence. And there's just no innocence left. I know as a parent, that is so hard. Because again, it's like all my kids have iPads. 
you know, school-issued iPads, and we have phones, and there's TVs, and it's like, they are so, there's micrometers, let's call it that, they are micrometers away from sexual exploitation at any given moment with that screen in their hands, even if they don't choose to be inundated, all they have to have is an Instagram account, right? And they are going to get spammed by porn accounts because the algorithms are red. And they know if you're male or female what you like or might not like. And they're going to get spammed by it even if they don't want it. So where are we left? Where should our sex education come from? Should we leave it up to culture? Should we leave it up to algorithms? Or should we stop shunning it? Should we stop shaming this conversation? And should we just enter into it and start talking about sex? Should we look at maybe what Jesus said about sex? Should we look at maybe um, what the Bible claims? I think at some point you're going to run into that, whether you want to or not. You're just going to run into what does Scripture say about it? So our creator, and that's where the Bible's going to start, the very beginning is going to talk about um, being sexed and the desire for sex. And so when we open up the Bible, in the very beginning, Genesis is our creation story. Genesis is where we find the origins of humanity at. And so in Genesis 1, I'm going to show it real quick. I'm going to read Genesis 1. So God created human beings in his own image, in the image of God he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. You guys can figure that part out, right? We're at that level. I don't have to explain that. (laughs) Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God looked over all he had made, and he called it very good. What's really cool about um, the actual like, Hebrew that this is written in, in this point in time, if you go back, is the word good in Hebrew is the word tov. Say it with me. Tov. Tov. T-O-V. Tov. That means good. And so we have this account of creation in Genesis. We have the origins of our world, the origins of humanity. And it takes all the way, and God is basically doing this whole, and you've probably heard the creation story at some point. There's light, and God called it Tove. And then there's uh, mountains, and God called it Tove. And then there's fish in the sea, and God called it Tove. And then he gets to that verse, to the humanity verse, and he calls it Tove Tove. Very good. There's something about the way God created humans how he created male and female, how he created us to be sexed and to desire sex, to be fruitful and multiply. That is not just tov, but tov tov. Very good. Which is why we shouldn't shame it. Which is why we need to be able to talk about it more. If you keep reading the Genesis account, you get past chapter 1, you're going to get to Genesis 2.25. And when you read Genesis 2.25, it says that Adam and Eve, 
in that original expression of creation, in that original expression of sexuality, they were able to be with each other and they were naked and unashamed. I love that. I love that so much because there is so much shame around talking about this. But when we look to the actual source of humanity and the source that our scriptures point to, it says God didn't design this conversation to be about shame. In fact, he designed humanity, he designed male and female to be able to reside together naked and unashamed. That's like his ultimate vision. To be naked and unashamed. To not all have all that guilt and all those scars just crippling us. See, God gave us form, and God gave us function, and it's very good. It is tov tov. And so the problem isn't in what we are created to be. It's in how we choose to express our creation. It's when we decide to go off script, which is why we really, really need Jesus to come into humanity. We really, really needed Jesus to put on the full form of humanness, to live in a human body so that he can redirect us back to a place where we can talk about this in a naked and unashamed way. Jesus lived roughly 30, 33 years. He spent a lot of time in a human male body And so there isn't anything he wouldn't have experienced that can't relate to our experience. And so when Jesus speaks, he's speaking out of his humanity, but trying to direct us back to God's original design for who we are and how we're supposed to live. So how does Jesus redirect us? What does Jesus have to say himself? What are his own words when it comes to how we express our sexual nature and sexual selves. I'm going to read a couple verses from Matthew 5. Jesus has this uh, stump speech, if you will. The Sermon on the Mount is a very important scripture in in Jesus' time. It's basically where Jesus has been doing some miracles. He's been acting in some God-like ways, but also very human-like ways. And he's finally kind of got enough of a following that he gets up on the side of a mountain, which really wasn't a huge mountain, it was more of a hill, but it created um, kind of this effect right here, where people could hear his words. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, this is where he starts to let his value system be known. This is where he talks about the Beatitudes and who's blessed and who's not blessed. This is where he talks about um, greed and money and giving to the poor. This is where he talks about authority and anger and uh, loving your, your neighbor and loving your enemy. And again, he's covering basically his whole value system. And he gets to these verses in 527 through 30 where he talks about sex. And he says this in verse 27 and 28. He's speaking to people. He's laying out his values. And he says, you have heard the commandment that says, you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
just going to stop right there and look at those two verses before we go on any further. When Jesus starts talking about this, the first thing he does is he acknowledges a design. He acknowledges that his father, who he was in partnership with to create humanity, had given humans a standard to flourish in. And so he says, I've, you've heard the commandment that if you're not married to them, don't sleep with them. That's the standard that he calls us to. He says that's the standard in which humanity really flourishes. But he says, I want to take it a step further. It's not just about not doing the deed. It's about how you look at someone. It's not just about getting undressed with someone physically in body form. It's like, do you undress people in mental form? Do you get undressed with people emotionally? This word lust that he uses, it's not used exclusively with sex. We think about it, we think about the word lust with sex, and, and that's where our minds go to it because it's probably been used in that context a lot with us, but the word lust is not exclusively used just with sex. It really means like unbridled coveting. To covet is another way that it's used synonymously all throughout the Bible. And so you can lust for power, you can lust for um, money, you can lust for image. It's really about coveting. It's about wanting something for your own reasons, according to your own design, regardless of the ripple effect that it creates. And Jesus says, if you want to belong with me, you need to not just redirect your bodies, but you need to redirect your minds. You need to redirect your hearts because I didn't create humanity to covet each other. I didn't create humans to be used by each other. I created humanity to flourish and to lift each other up, not try to bring them down and to debase them. And so to follow me means, yes, staying within the boundaries, keeping sex within the boundaries of marriage, but it's not just that. It's about having the right kind of heart and the right kind of mind that doesn't use humans according to our own design. See, sex is not just physical, it's spiritual as well. And I, and I think a good analogy for this is like music. Have you ever had a song really stir your soul? Absolutely you have. There are songs that take you back to a time and place and it could be uh, Garth Brooks' Friends in Low Places, right? <laughs> or Taylor Swift. No? Oh my gosh. My daughter likes Taylor Swift now. I can't even believe, she is, she, my daughter now, uh, this morning on the Alexa, I, I hear at 6.30, all right, at 6.30, I'm getting up this morning, I'm getting ready to come in, and I'm in my chair, I'm putting my boots on right, and I, get, and I hear above us, above me where my chair is on the next floor, I hear on my Alexa, Love Story. Is that one of her songs? Yeah, so I hear Love Story, whatever that one is. Right? It's all of them. but you have this musical experience. You have these songs that really resonate with your heart. I can think of songs when I was back in college rocking. You know, like you have these songs and, and they don't just 
Like, like music, and, and especially songs that really stir you and, and, and take you back to a moment, those aren't just notes. Those aren't just, that's not just uh, uh, ink on stanzas. Music is not just sound percussion. It's not just percussion on waves entering through, you know, passing through the air and entering into my ear canal and vibrating on my eardrums and then traveling up my nervous system into my brain that gives me a sense of pleasure or displeasure. You could look at music that way, where music is nothing more than random notes, sound waves, percussion, physical impulses, and your brain trying to convince you whether it's pleasurable or, or not pleasurable. But you know there are songs that have stirred your soul. They've stirred something deeper. There's something spiritual. There's a spiritual message in that. And sex is the same way. Sex is not just about the physical impulses, either pleasurable or not pleasurable. Sex is a portal to the soul. Sex is transformative. What we do with our bodies reverberates in our souls. And so to flourish, we have to listen to the creator of our souls and say, you know best, not me. Which is why Jesus takes this whole thing so seriously. Uh, he continues on in verses 29 and 30. Can we get those up there, please? Jesus continues and he says, So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, Jesus is exaggerating. There's a time and a place to read the Bible as literal, because if this was literal, we would have a really hard time looking at each other in the eye and shaking hands today. <laughs> the, lot of, the eye patch economy would be very strong. So what's Jesus doing? Does he really literally want anybody who's ever lusted or desired to use someone, does he really want them to pluck their eye out? No. But he's trying to drive home a really important point. He says, this is serious, y'all. What we do with our bodies reverberates into our souls. And I need you. I want you. This isn't what I want from you. This is what I want for you. I want you to trust me on this. Trust me that sex is not just about your body. Trust me that sex is also about your soul. Don't settle. Don't let instant gratification affect your eternity. And here's what I think really needs to be said. It's probably what... Um, Christian faith communities or any religious community has failed to say well, and, and hopefully I'll get close enough to do, to do this next thing some justice. It's not sex, sexual expression, sexual activity that separates us from God. It's sin. There's a difference, okay? God can forgive 
failure. God can forgive brokenness. God can do a lot of things. What he can't forgive is a heart that just refuses to trust him ever. And that's what sin is. Who cares about what you've done? Who cares about any of that? Stop thinking in that, well, in that vein. It's, it's not sexual activity that, you know, it's, it's not the acts that separate us from God. It's our hearts. And that's where sin dwells. Sin is saying, I know best. I'm going to do with my life what I want to do. I'm God of my life. God, I know you have good advice, and I'll take it when I feel like it serves my purpose. Um, you know, you tell me to forgive, and that, t- that tends to work out pretty well, and you tell me to give to the poor, and you know, when I'm generous, that makes me feel pretty good. But when it comes to this, you know, design for sex that you've given me, I just, it just doesn't work. I don't want to do it that way. I want to do it my way. It's that. That's sin. I want to do things my way. And I'm not going to budge here, God. I'm sorry. That's what separates us from God. It's the inward heart of choosing to do our way over and over and over again and saying, sorry, God, I know best. You can just chill out. See, Jesus' way, to some of us, it may seem unreasonable, right? Oh, this is just history. This is 2,000 years ago. There's no way Jesus would expect us to hold this kind of standard today. And that's just kind of a bunch of malarkey. 2,000 years ago, people were having just as much sex then as they were now, okay? People have always had sex. In fact, one of the defining cultures of, of the Christian community, as it was being born in that first century A.D., it was because they chose to live to this sexual ethic of not having sex with anybody who wasn't your spouse. And, the, and people back then couldn't understand that, especially the Romans and the Greeks. As like a male head of a Greek and Roman household, you were expected to have sex with any female servant that lived under your household. Women were objects to be used to impregnate. That was the culture that Christianity was born in. And so this sexual ethic of treating women not as property, but as God's image bearers was revolutionary. Because sex was just as rampant in any point of culture as it's ever been. And so that whole idea that, well, we're modern now and those values are for the old. No, that's malarkey. Christ followers, people who choose to follow Jesus have always, always revolutionized whatever culture's sexual ethic is at the time. It's always stood apart. And so it's not unreasonable. It's not unattainable. I'll tell you what Jesus' sexual ethic is. It's covenantal. It's the ethic of a covenant. It's what Johnny Cash talks about in that song. What was that lyric that you heard over and over again? I walk the line because you're mine. Because you're mine, I walk the line. Any real relationship is going to have boundaries. 
There is no relationship without boundaries. You and I are created for covenant, permanent, exclusive, committed relationship with God. That's what Jesus was. That's what he came to bring. Jesus entered this earth and said, I am the new covenant. I want you to belong to me. How do I know that you're mine? Because you walk the line. Because you follow me. And it's not just with sex. That's why we've been looking at this this whole month. It's not just about sex. It's about money. It's about uh, greed. It's about forgiveness. It's about any of the things that you could find in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, this is my ethical system. This is what it means to walk in my way. How do I know you're mine? Because you walk the line. Because we agree to bind our fates together. More than anything else, that's what covenant is. The binding of our fates together. God left heaven and came, came down to earth to bind our fates together, to create a new covenant where you and I are created to live an exclusive, permanent, committed relationship with the one true God. And so sex... And sexual expression is supposed to be a mirror of covenant. Just as you and I are created to live in this vertical relationship with the one true God, in a permanent, committed, exclusive relationship, sex is supposed to only be uh, practiced and given and fulfilled in that covenant of marriage, in that permanent, exclusive, committed relationship. Sex is primarily not about the pleasure we feel, even though it is pleasurable, and God created that to be good. Sex is primarily about being a mirror for the kind of covenant relationship we're called to spiritually. That's what Jesus wants for you. He wants more than anything else to live in a covenant with you. Where you and him are together eternally. And again, it's not going to be sex that gets in the way of that. It's going to be sin. The heart piece is, do I trust Jesus to be the Son of God, and do I choose to walk his way? What might we be able to do if we feel called to that kind of relationship, if we want to to walk the line according to Jesus' way, what are some steps maybe we could take? I think the first thing we have to do, it's really not even about sex. It's about intimacy. See, we want to be wanted, right? Like every human wants to be wanted. We want to feel complete. We want to feel whole. We want our souls to feel satisfied. And, and sex can, can kind of like a shortcut that. It's kind of like hot wiring a car, It gets you there quicker. But that kind of intimacy, the kind of intimacy found in sex or that sex might provide, it's not going to last. I mean, even the best sex in the world, we all know, does not last. And so the real way to step into covenant and the real place to start in all of this is it starts with cultivating intimacy between you and your creator. You were made to attach. 
we're all made to attach, to have emotional connections. But if we're always trying to get that primary source of emotional attachment and emotional connection from another human, we're always going to be left wanting. It's always going to fall short. It's never going to last completely. Even the best relationships, the best marriages, the best romantic expressions in the world, it never lasts. There's always ups and downs. But intimacy with God, like that's what he wants. That's what he's trying to do. In John 14, 23, I don't have this one up there, but Jesus says to his followers, it's on the night that he dies, Jesus is getting ready to be betrayed, Jesus is having a last supper, Jesus is getting ready to go to his death. And Jesus says, all who love me, belong to me, all who love me and do what I say, they belong to me. And my father and I will come and make our home in each of them. That's what ultimate intimacy looks like is having the spirit of the living God dwell in your deepest being. And no one or no thing can ever take that away. The intimacy that you long for, the intimacy that you're created for, it starts in the vertical relationship of knowing God. And just like any other relationship, you've got to make time for it. God says we're made in his image. We are image bearers. God is a relational God. How do you get to know someone? How do you get to develop intimacy in your horizontal relationship? By being curious, right? And spending time, going on dates, hanging out. Perhaps that's the same kind of time and attention that needs to be given to our Creator. And so we have to ask, if we want an intimacy that will never go away, are we willing to spend the time it takes to develop that intimacy? Are we willing to pursue God as much as we would pursue a potential spouse or romantic partner? I think another way we we, we must embrace to really live Jesus' way is we need to reject attitudes and activities that degrade people instead of dignifying them meaning that whole attitude of objectification, looking at people for their parts, not seeing their souls. Pornography has got to go. Like the desire to make the world a less pornography-filled place is something that we can all contribute to. When I go back again to the idea of how I raise my kids, how you raise your kids, and the world they're growing up in where sexual exploitation and sexual objectification are exemplified and seen everywhere, porn starts to become normal. It starts to become a part of the way you find sexual expression and sexual pleasure. But it is so degrading. I can't imagine God saying, you know what, that's exactly how I designed humans right there. And so again, that starts on an internal journey to say, you know what, I've had enough. I don't like this. Maybe I need help in rejecting pornography. Maybe I need to talk to someone and ask for help and ask for some accountability. But what Jesus wants is Jesus is trying to move us back to a a new creation. If you want to imagine it like a new Eden 
in a sense. A garden that is beautiful, full of dignity, and every human has a place where they don't have to be degraded or ashamed for who they are, what they look like, and we get to participate right now. We don't have to wait until we die (laughs) to participate in bringing heaven to earth. That's what Jesus is calling his followers to. He says, let's make earth more like heaven and less like hell, and let's do it right now. And so that's going to take people who say, all right, I'm going to reject certain things, especially when it comes to sexual exploitation, pornography, to say, I'm going to reject that. I'm going to ask for help rejecting that because I want to make this world a better place right now for every human. And the last thing I think we might need to hear at this point is, is for a lot of us, we, we've got to stop looking at our past and really start looking towards a future. That Jesus is bringing in a new creation, that idea of a new Eden. He wants to establish a new rule, a new kingdom on this earth. And there's a lot of shame, there's a lot of brokenness. In a room this size, you know, uh, one out of every three, the United Kingdom just did this study, one out of every 53 males will report being sexually abused in their lifetime. One out of every nine females will report being sexually abused in their lifetime. You know that goes up when we're just talking about harassment, right? And even if we want to expand that um, to not just sexual abuse or sexual exploitation or sexual harassment, but to emotional abuse. Just think about being that kid who maybe he's told, yeah, you're not man enough, right? Your masculinity was called into question, and that caused some scars. Your femininity was called into question. You're not attractive enough, not pretty enough, and the scars that come with that. That baggage can really act like an anchor and just hold us down. And so I think perhaps maybe one of the most miraculous things um, that Jesus was able to do was was give us this way to, to leave a former life, to leave our former selves behind and step into new life and new creation. That is such a huge theme. If you, if you spend the time getting your fingerprints on the Bible, I promise you, this idea of new creation is going to start popping up more and more. And you're going to start to see that it doesn't matter what happened in my former life. I can't go back and fix what's broken. Let's, I mean, that's, that's just a truth, right? We like to think that we can work hard enough, try hard enough, be smart enough, do enough self-improvement things to fix our past. You can't fix your past. Your past has happened but you don't have to let your past control your future. What we can do is get our eyes up off of our past, off of the former self and a former life, and get our eyes up and focused on Jesus and the new life that he offers. And what I think kind of works together kind of miraculously as we do that, As we leave our former lives, our former selves, our scars, we leave them at the cross, they go into the tomb, and we experience resurrection. We experience new life through pursuing that intimacy with Jesus, pursuing intimacy with our Creator. And the more intimacy we pursue with our Creator, the less we're going to want to degrade people, the less we're going to want to objectify others. And then we become more of that new creation again. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Romans 8, 1. Romans 8, 1 is the Apostle Paul, and he says this, those who belong to Christ Jesus are now under no condemnation. 
no guilt, no shame. There's this beautiful thing that happens when we come to Jesus and we say, yes, I want that covenant. Yes, I want to exist in a permanent, exclusive, committed relationship with you because I want the kind of intimacy that comes more than any other thing on this earth. And so what I'm going to do right now is just pray. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to invite the band to come back up. But as you're praying, I just want you to listen. Not to my voice so much as to that voice of God perhaps speaking inside of you, giving you a nudge, giving you a a word, giving you an image so that you can leave here today encountering Jesus. Would you guys pray with me, please? Father, I just want to thank you for letting us get together this morning. It's been uh, cold and wet, kind of nasty outside. So I just want to thank you providing this space in here the space where we can talk. <clears throat> you designed us to, um, to embody dignity. You designed us to flourish by flourishing with you first in a vertical relationship. And by flourishing in our vertical relationship with you, to have that flourishing overflow and spill horizontally into all the relationships that we have. And so I just pray for some, um, that we might experience an emotional security that comes from you alone, an an intimacy that we can tell is from you, a belonging that comes from you, that we would be okay with opening up the longings in our hearts, the aches in our hearts. Maybe we've suppressed them, maybe we've pushed those down, the actual longings that we have. And instead of pushing them down, we would bring them to you, that you have again designed us to flourish, and to flourish through a relationship with Jesus, believing he was who he said he was, believing that he's alive right now, hearing us, seeing us, experiencing us. And we just pray for a word, a thought, a phrase, or an image from you directly that could inspire us to live differently this week. To your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.